for those of you who were with us last week, we began a brand new series called Prepared for Purpose, The Hand of God in the Hidden Years. And I have been just stupidly blessed preparing this and praying over it and reading it. And I pray that you were blessed last week. But if you missed it, what we're looking at is this really fascinating time in the Scripture between two windows. There's a window in 1 Samuel 19 where David, who is not the king at that point in time, is married to Saul's, who is the king of Israel, his daughter, Michal. And Saul is pursuing David's life, seeking to kill him. And Michal lets David out through a window and he escapes. She risks her own life for the salvation of the man that she loves. And then 20 years later, there's a second window. 20 years later marks this moment of purpose for David's life where he's dancing before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem. And as he dances before the Lord with all of his might, there again is Michal. And where is she? Standing at a window. But this time, her attitude is different. This time, instead of risking her life for the love of her life, it says she despises him in her heart. And these two windows have captivated my heart, captivated my mind. 20 years of hiddenness for for David, 20 years where this man who's known as a man after God's own heart is hidden from the people of Israel, the star of Israel, the guy we talked about, the red carpet's been rolled out for him. Everybody loves him. They're singing songs. His face is on the Wheaties box. He's got colognes named after him. Like everything is going right for David. And then out of the blue, bang, 20 years when no one knows your name, 20 years hiding, running, fleeing, What is it that God does in those 20 years that prepares David for his purpose? What is God teaching David? And what happens to Michal? Why does she go from loving this man and so full of faith and passion to despising David in her heart? There's this fascinating time in the Scriptures, which is what we're exploring here. And this this picture that David, the dark night of David's soul, becomes the place of preparation. You almost get this picture that this, it's, the, the hiddenness is David's prison, but that prison becomes a prism through which the glory of God is revealed in his life, where he learns more of God, where God's holiness becomes more manifest, where his heart is softened and prepared for the things that God would have him do. What happens in this season. And it's so fascinating to me. I pray that you're going to be so blessed today as we continue to look at this. And so last week, we started at the end because sometimes insight comes through hindsight. Amen. Sometimes you've got to start at the end to actually understand the context and the perspective. So when you get back to the beginning, you can see it through the right lens. So we started at the end, but today we come back to the beginning. Today we come to the first window, 1 Samuel chapter 19. So stand to your feet because it's good to read the, the Word of the Lord together and it's good to stand before God. And reading from 1 Samuel from verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. 
But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal led David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Verse 18, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah. Everyone say Ramah. And told him all that Saul had done. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. And word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, so he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, but guess what happened? They also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. Whoa, there's a bit in that. The Spirit of God came even on him, even on the guy hunting the man who God had anointed to be king. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? You may be seated. Speak, Lord. Thank you, Sheree. God has a word for us in this. As I've read this, I, have, I reckon I've read this a hundred times this week. And every time I look at it, I'm just like, this is such a strange passage of history. <laughs> Last night, we had the youth quiz night. Anyone come to the youth quiz night? What a great night it was. Thanks, guys, for organising that. Can we give Ben and Leans and the team an incredible round of applause? And got our target. Where's Ben gone? He's might gone to kids. We got our target, I think, which was so good. But at that, Matty Nichols was, was emceeing and he made a comment about Age of Empires, which I thought was so funny. Could anyone else here play Age of Empires when they were younger? So that was like, I didn't have computer games, but like the one game I played along with Jordan versus Bird was Age of Empires. And all this week I've been looking at this passage, being like, this is such an Age of Empires thing. It's like, there's this guy who's built this, you know, kingdom up and he's trying to come and kill this guy, David, and as he sends the army in, there's the prophet or the wizard or whatever it is in the Age of Empires. They're just like prophesying and the army comes along and they can't fight because they just keep getting thrown on the ground. There's the next one, then the next one, then the next one, and then Saul himself comes along and blah, out he goes. Like so Age of empire Seems like such a strange passage, but there's so much in this about what God is going to say because as I've been reflecting on this and going, what is it that you want to say, God, to your people? What is the what is the word in season for this church, but not just this church, the church all over the world? What are you saying? And the passage, the the phrase that has captivated me is this: over in Naoth at Ramah, that David went to Samuel at Ramah. Why did David go to Ramah? Why would he go there? And in order to grasp that, you've got to understand where Naoth at Ramah is and what it is. You see, Naoth at Ramah, literally translated, it means habitations on a hill, right? 
habitations on a hill. It is the place where Samuel and the prophets lived. It is not a city. It has not got fortified walls. It is anything but a stronghold. It's basically a camping ground, right? That's what Naoth Ramah is. David is fleeing for his life. Now, remember who David is. He has been a general in, in God's army. He has led thousands of soldiers into battle. He knows what a stronghold is. He knows where you go when you're in trouble. And it is not a campground on a hill. You don't go there when someone's trying to kill your life. You go to a, a military stronghold. Yet David, this very intelligent, very capable warrior, chooses the first thing he does to go to Naoth at Ramah. Why? Why does he go there? Why does he, like of all the places and all the decisions, he chooses to go there? And the interesting thing about it is because Naoth at Ramah is the place of prophecy. It is the place where God's man, Samuel, and the prophets dwell. This is the place where you go to get a word from God. David, knowing his life is on the line, chooses not to go to a military stronghold, but goes to the place of prophecy. He goes to the place where God can speak to him. Why does he choose to do that? Why go there? I want you to understand something around the word prophecy here. See, uh, for me, um, I, like, I grew up and I went to a Pentecostal high school where great stuff happened. Uh, God, you know, the gifts were in full force and it was, it was a great time that we had together. But the interesting thing is that every single person was like, I'm going to prophesy, I'm going to prophesy, I'm going to prophesy. Everyone called themselves a prophet. We need to be very careful with that. Let me say this first up. As a church, we absolutely believe that the gifts are for today. We believe the gifts we should, the Bible says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. We believe the gifts are for today. But we've got to be careful just saying, because someone says a nice thing about you, that that's prophecy. In the Old Testament, if you claim to be a prophet and were wrong, you got stoned to death. So let's not all just run out calling ourselves prophets, all right? Well, we've got to be careful. But what prophecy means in this context, in this Old Testament passage, that word prophecy, it literally means proclamation of God's word, the proclamation of truth. This is what God is saying, the very word of God. And often in Old Testament times, it wasn't an encouraging word. It was a word of rebuke. But God speaks. God speaks today. He speaks through his word. God spoke then. And so they come and David's going to a place where he can get a word from God, where he can hear the word of God proclaimed. So he runs off and he runs to Samuel and he says, this is what's going on. He says, the Bible says here that he came and he told Samuel everything that Saul had done because he needs a word. He needs encouragement. He needs to know what's going on. He needs to understand what God is doing. Because when you're eight and ten, or eight, we said he was eight to ten years old, and you've been given a word from God. He stood there in front of his brothers, had Samuel come, anoint him with oil and say, you're going to be the next king of Israel, didn't he? And so David up to this point is like, everything's going well. 
I'm leading the army. I'm married to the princess. My best mate's the prince. Things are looking all right for me. People are singing songs about me. The nation loves me. Everything's going according to plan. Everything looks like the promise is going to be fulfilled. And out of nowhere, you're out a window and you're fleeing for your life. So David's reaction here for a man of God makes great sense because the first thing he does is he runs to God. And he goes, what's going on? I thought this was going to happen. You said I was going to be king of Israel. Now the king is hunting me down like a dog. Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Why is this not going how I thought it would go? And I love this. This reminds me of, I coached the under 10, two under 10 basketball teams here at Hills Christian Community School. And sometimes that's challenging. Sometimes it's more challenging than pastoring. (laughs) And they're a great bunch of kids, but they're young and they're crazy and they run all over the place. And so we have a lot of fun together. We muck around a fair bit, try to keep them busy. And so we play this game at the end of every practice, which we call shoot for a Freddo. Now, that's reasonably self-explanatory, isn't it, Simon? We literally shoot for a Freddo, right? So at the end of training, I line them all up and I go, all right, if you can make this many shots, I'll give you all the Freddo frog, right? So they line up and it's always very exciting, but they never come close, <laughs> ever. So like, all right, as a team, we've got to make 10 Freddos or 10 shots and you all get a Freddo. And so they line up and it's brick, 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 except for this one day where first one goes in, second one goes in, third, and they just kept on making. And I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to cough up some Freddos. And of course, I didn't have the Freddos on me because why would you have Freddos on you when you know they're not going to make the Freddos? So anyway, they're, all, they're making these shots. Eventually, they hit the number. There's great celebration. Like, yeah, Freddos. I'm like, all right, guys, I promise you, next week, I will bring the Freddos. Now, of course, the next week comes around, and what have I forgotten to do? bring the Freddos. Did they forget? Heck no. The first thing they do when they walk in those doors, Freddos! Next week, kids, the very next week, what do they come in? Freddos! Have I remembered them? Heck no. And on and on and on and on. I reckon we went about 10 weeks where I forgot the Freddos until eventually Mabel's like, Dad, don't forget the Freddos for goodness sakes. Now we've got them stored in the car just to make sure that they, it's going to be great in summer when they're all melted. But the fascinating thing about that is these kids, right, when a promise has been given to a child, do they let go of it? Never. This is what it means to have childlike faith. So often we talk about childlike faith. So often when we're thinking about childlike faith, people just go, that's just just an innocent, unintelligent ignorance, just a blind leap in the dark. They don't really understand anything, so they just believe whatever you tell them. That is not what the Bible means by childlike faith. What the Bible means by childlike faith, if you ever spend any time with a kid, they will ask you the question why over and over and over and over again. There is a deep desire to understand truth in a child. And if you tell them something, if you make a promise to them, they will not let go of that promise, especially when it's a good promise. They will hold on to that and they will come back to that and they will badger you over and over and over and over again until the promise comes to pass. Friends, here's what the Lord shows us in this text. David has a childlike faith. David comes knowing the promise of God and the first place he goes is to the one who made the promise. 
He comes to Samuel, the guy who gave the promise, the guy who God spoke through. And he's basically saying, I want my Freddo. You promised me this. You made a promise. And he comes to Samuel and he doesn't let go. He doesn't give up on the promise. He doesn't relent on the promise. He doesn't just go, yeah, have whatever you want. No, no. He says, you said this. Why is it not coming to pass? And so he goes to Naoth at Ramah because that's the place of the promise. That's the place where he's going to get his answer. That's him pursuing it and saying, give it to me. God, what are you doing? And I wonder today if there's anyone in this church who needs to go back to Naoth at Ramah because God's given you a promise and you've given up on it. You've forsaken that promise. You said, oh, it hasn't come to pass in 10 years. Well, whatever. And you've stopped praying about it and you've stopped going to Samuel, metaphorically speaking, saying, where is it? And God would remind you this morning, as he did in the life of David, to not give up on the promises that he has made. If he has promised you something, go back to Ramah. Go back and start saying, no, I will not let go of this. I will grab it with two hands and I will shake it until the apples start to fall from the tree. David knows what has been promised and he will not let go. So he goes to Naoth at Ramah, the stupidest place to go if you are under threat of being murdered but he knows that's the place where he's going to hear from God some of us need to hear from God some of us need to get out of the news feed some of us need to get out of Instagram out of Facebook some of us need to get out of all the other nonsense that we're listening to and we need to get in the presence of God and get after the promises that he has bestowed upon us so David goes to Naoth Ramah because he wants a word. And here's the awesome thing. God gives it to him, but he doesn't give it to him through an utterance of the mouth. In fact, we have no idea what these guys said. The interesting thing is David comes to Samuel and it says he told Samuel everything. And it, says, it doesn't say that Samuel said anything. All it says is that David stayed there. He stayed with Samuel. He stayed with the prophets, but... We don't hear David prophesying. We don't hear Samuel prophesying over David. Nothing. And then the soldiers come. And the first lot of soldiers come. And they're there with their swords and their armor. And they're about to kill David. And they enter Ramah, the place of the promise. And the first thing that happens is they go, and they fall. They just start prophesying. Wouldn't it be cool to know what they said? How good would that be? They're like, we're going to kill David. And the next minute, like, hell, Jesus. Who knows what they said? We don't know, but it would have been awesome. And so they're just like flat on their backs, prophesying before the Lord, proclaiming the promises of God. And then the next lot come along and they're doing the same thing. We're going to get him. And then, whoa, God, you're so good. And then the next lot come along and it's like, whoa, he's a good, good father. Like they're just declaring that in the end, Saul's had enough. He's like, stuff that. He goes, I'm going. God can't stop me. The king with his armour and his sword and he's ready to go and get David and he walks into Ramah and what happens to him? (laughs) He's out in the presence of God, prophesying. And in this interaction, the word of God comes to David, not necessarily in the spoken, but through the whole interaction. Can I show you just a couple of things that God's revealing to David? Here's the first thing. The, oh, it's so good, friends. The first thing that we got to see here is that God gives David a word testifying to the promise. 
It's a witness to the legitimacy of what was spoken over him when he was eight years old. And here's what happens. Here's how he does it. Because Saul comes to Ramah in the presence of Samuel where he was anointed king. You see, when you read 1 Samuel 19, it says something fascinating at the end. It says, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, that is a direct quote from 1 Samuel 10. What does that tell you, Bible readers? Connected. Don't read 1 Samuel 19 and then not read 1 Samuel 10. When you go to 1 Samuel 10, lo and behold, it's the place where Saul is anointed as king. And it happens where? At Ramah. In the presence of whom? Samuel. And in that moment, what happens is Saul is transformed. The power of God comes upon Saul and he becomes, he's anointed as king. He's given the gift and the the authority and the anointing of kingship. And it says that he prophesied in Saul's presence at Ramah. Now, years later, the same Saul is standing in front of the same Samuel in the same place. And he's also prophesying, but instead of having kingly robes put on him, he's now the naked prophet. And the kingly robes have been stripped off of him. What is this saying? Let me put it this way. When I was in year 12, I was a a school leader. So they call them prefects back in the day. And part of being a prefect, when you got a name to prefect, you'd come up on the stage and the principal himself would stand before you and he'd give you a little badge. And stand before everyone and say, there's your badge. You are now a prefect. And what they're doing in that moment is not just giving you a badge. What are they doing? bestowing authority to lead. And the badge represents more than a little piece of metal. It represents position and authority, right? Now, in the first week of school, so we got named prefects. Then like two days later, we had a swimming carnival. And the last event of the day is a 50-meter freestyle. And so there's eight of us, and most of us were school leaders in that moment, trying to swim to the end, have a race. And before there was banter happening about how funny would it be if the last race, instead of swimming to the end and racing, we just jumped in and sort of changed lanes and mucked around and had a bit of a laugh. We're like, yeah, that'd be really fun. We're like, yeah, that'd be hilarious. Yep. I'm never going to do that. It's a competition. I want to win. So we're bantering, but I'm thinking this is just banter. Yeah, that would be funny, but No one's doing that, guys. But I didn't say that. I was like, yeah, that'd be really funny. Then I got up on the blocks. And then my mates on this side also got up on the blocks. Gun goes off. What do we do? Race as fast as we can to the end. These four blokes didn't think it was banter. They thought we'd agreed. So what they do is jump in, change lanes. They just start mucking around. Everyone's having a laugh. We get out of the pool and the principal is mad. And he was a big man, he's a godly man, and you did not want to be on his wrong side. And he just sort of walked up with this look of disappointment on his face and he says to us, I'll see you boys Monday. And into the office we went on Monday and I'll never forget this moment where he stood there in front and he basically, he like tore strips off these guys saying, you dishonoured the school, you dishonoured this position of leadership, you acted against that which had been bestowed upon you, I am removing that badge from you. And we sort of talked about it. We're like trying to back him in. Like, oh, no, no, it was a, like a misunderstanding. He goes, uh, 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 uh. And he put out his hand and he said, give me a badge. And in that moment, as the badge came off, the authority was stripped. Now, throughout that week before, after we'd got those badges, so many times that badge was given to a whole heap of people. People are like, oh, look, I'm a prefect. The, 
in the handing over, when I handed that over to someone else, the authority was not given away. The only way that authority could be stripped was if it was in the presence of the right person at the right place with his proclamation. And so what happens is in the handing over of the item, the authority, the spiritual authority is removed. The same thing is happening here in this passage because Saul is in the presence of Samuel, the presence of God. He's at the place of Ramah, the place where God speaks, where the anointing happens on Saul's life. And instead of the clothes going on, they are being stripped off, which is a powerful message to David because what's happening here is God is saying, David, my promise is true. Look, I've stripped the authority of Saul. Saul has dishonoured me and now the authority of kingship that had been placed on him is being stripped off of him and he is naked before me. He has no authority in this space. He is bearing witness. He's saying, don't forget, I've not forgotten and I've not forsaken my promise. Stuff's gonna go down. You've got a journey ahead of you, but trust me. Hold on to my promise. And in this moment of David seeing this, he's like, wow. It gives him a tangible thing to grasp for the journey ahead. Second thing that we're gonna see here is this incredible promise, this incredible word for our weakness. David is at his most vulnerable that he has ever been. He has no army, he has no armor, he's got nothing. He has fleed for his life and he has escaped to Ramah at Naoth with nothing, no one alone and isolated. The only person he has is some old, only people he has are some old prophets in the presence of God. Saul has everything. And he sends his army, he sends troops after troops after troops and eventually he sends himself. And here's the thing, when we are weak, God is strong. Later in David's story, he's in the stronghold. He's got his 400 soldiers. He's got everything going on for him. And we don't see God intervene in the way that God intervenes right now. But in this moment, David's most vulnerable moment, the moment of David's greatest weakness, we see the most incredible demonstration of God's power. Where Saul's like, I've got this guy. He's got nothing. What a stupid person. Why has he gone to Naoth at Ramah? And God's just like, boom. You think you can come and get my anointed? Uh Uh-uh. And God himself stops him. And he doesn't just stop him by, you know, being like, I can't get through the wall. Like he literally just flattens him in his spirit. He's like, you coming to get him? You're going to prophesy for 24 hours, champ. And God, I wish I knew what he was saying because he's probably there like David's going to be the future. He's probably prophesying everything he's wishing that he wasn't declaring. But in that moment, the power of God is made manifest in David's situation. But it's made manifest because David is so weak and so vulnerable. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. As we are humble before the Lord, as we are weak before the Lord, that's where we see the power of God. And so often in our society, it's all about us trying to be strong, trying to be courageous. It's us trying to do things in our own strength, trying to make things happen, move walls, move situations, move trouble. I can do this, I can do this. And God's saying, if you would be weak before me, then you would see my power at work. 
when we are weak, he is strong. We don't celebrate weakness in our world. I just take one look at everyone's Instagram feeds. I bet you the last time you put something on there that celebrated your weakness, it never happened. (laughs) Instead, it's the fake edited reality of our strength. What if we celebrated our weakness and said, but God, but God, but God, but God. And we started to celebrate God in our weakness. What would we see? We may just see the manifestation of His power on earth. Amen? There's a word for our weakness. Don't hate and forsake the season of weakness. Allow that season to turn us to the worship of our great God and trust Him in the midst of that. Trust Him in the midst of that. And then we see this other incredible word to David, which comes in the form of a warning. And it has smashed me all week. Because here's what has struck me. David comes to Ramah complaining. He comes and says, this is what's happened. Saul's done this. Saul's done that. And he gets no word from Samuel. He just comes complaining and he comes weak. Saul comes prophesying under the power of the Spirit with an army around him. Yet David is God's man, not Saul. How often in this world do we look to the charisma, do we look to the gift and we assume that that is God's person and we celebrate them and we honour them as opposed to looking the character of the heart. And as I've looked at this, I've seen to the naked eye, if you're an innocent bystander and you see Saul prophesying, you see him falling in the presence of God, to the naked eye, you'd be like, wow, look at that guy. God's all over him, wouldn't you? The anointing of God's on him. He's the one we should be following. Look, he's prophesying. He's prophesying naked, the boldness. He's in Samuel's presence. This is God's man, get behind Saul. But that is not the message of this passage. The message of the passage is that God's man is the weak one. God's man is the one who comes with the man who is after his own heart, but he has no sword, he has no army, there's nothing glamorous about him in this moment. What would it look like for us as a church, as a people, if we truly understood that character far outweighs charisma every day of the week. We are so sucked in. You look at pop culture, what do we do? We elevate man. We worship man. We celebrate, we even call him king. We call him King James. We call him the king of pop. We call him the king of rock, whatever it is. We elevate people. We worship people. We, we honour these people above every other being, including God himself. Why? Because they're gifted. But gifting without grounding is always reason and cause for destruction. We do it in the 
secular world and we do it in the church. Where we look at a person, we look at a man, we look at a woman and we celebrate them, we elevate them and we, we worship them and then we wonder why they fall. And if we just realise that actually God is less interested in someone's ability and more interested in their heart, and God is less concerned about their charisma or even, even their anointing, and He's more concerned about their, their passion and their desire and their eyes being fixed upon Him. And if we got on our knees, if we were a people who got on our knees and just sought first the kingdom and its righteousness, what would we see in the world? You see, God is doing something in David's life right here. God is saying, mate, you have everything. You were, you, the, the platform was set. There was fame. People were singing songs about you. As I said, his face is on the Wheaties box. Everything's going well. Everyone loves him. He's, he's destined for stardom. And then right at the pinnacle of that moment, God takes him and rips it out of him. And he says, not now, because that is not what you need to be the man I'm creating and calling you to be. No, what you need is the hidden place. You don't need the attention you don't need the, all the, the attractions that are coming your way. No, what you need is to be just with me in my presence, even if it means hiding in a cave for 20 years. But in that place, I'm gonna build something in you so you can actually be prepared for purpose. Because I'm more interested in your heart than your ability. And it's so fascinating that for David, for 20 years, friends, 20 years. Do you understand how long that is? Some of you aren't even 20 yet. Many of you. It's a long blooming time. 20 years in hiding. 20 years wondering where the anointing was going to come to pass. 20 years in hiding. And God's doing something in him. And here's the interesting thing. When you get past 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David is now elevated, when David is on the rooftop looking down on everybody else, when he's forsaken that which God had built in him, that's when he falls. And the reason he falls is because he has elevated himself instead of humbly serving his nation, instead of humbly serving the call of God, he's become about him and not about God. And it's been so heavy on my heart, especially for church leaders and church pastors and the people who would shepherd the flock of God that we would realise and we would have it deeply ingrained in our hearts that we are not the chief shepherd. We are under shepherds. And just this week, it occurred to me, I need to be more selfish in asking for prayer. Pray for me, pray for me, pray for Robin, pray for Leona, pray for Ben, pray for those who God has called to lead because we must be a people first and foremost who are on our knees before a holy God. That we would recognise that it's our weakness where God's power is made manifest. That we would recognise that it doesn't matter, don't look at the preaching, don't look at any gift, no, look at the character. God, grow in us character, grow in every single one of us character, grow in us long-suffering. You know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that is the evidence that the Spirit is at work in a person's life. 
I've heard so many sermons preach the anointing, the anointing, the anointing, and it's great. The gifts are great. The gifts are not the evidence that God is on a man. If it was, then God would be on Saul. The gifts are not the evidence. They are a gift from God for the edification of the saints that we might do the work of ministry. But the evidence of the Spirit at work is character. Don't be fooled. Paul comes to the Galatians who has bewitched you. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't elevate a man. Pray for a man. Elevate Christ. And if you're a pastor watching this, if you're a leader watching this, for the love of God, you were not called first and foremost to have followers. You were called to be a follower. Follow Christ. And let those who would follow you come, but follow Christ. For all of us, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. He says, come follow me, follow him, follow him, follow him. He is Lord of all. He is the King of Kings. And God is saying to David right here in this moment, he goes, David, I've got bigger things in store for you. And I've got to get that which is in you out of you to prepare you. He humbles him to keep him from falling. May that be true of us, hey? Husbands in this place, humble yourself and serve your wife and love her as Christ loves the church. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Wives in this place, humble yourself and love your husbands and serve them. And we do that, we see strong marriages. Singles in this place, humble yourself. Love God. Seek Christ first and foremost and all these things you desire will be added unto you. Humble ourselves before the Lord. For He alone is worthy, amen? He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of our praise. Others are worthy of our prayer. Goodness sakes, please. (laughs) He alone is worthy of our praise. I'm going to invite the band up and I've got to close. There's too many. This messed me up in the first service as well. I'm going to kind of compose myself. There are too many church leaders who are falling. Too many. And it's not just famous people. It's everywhere. And the reason it's everywhere is because pastors and leaders are forsaking their first love. Pastors and leaders are forgetting that the call of God is fashioned in the hidden place. hidden place, the secret place. Saul is lying naked before the Lord. Israel was never supposed to have a king. Israel's king was supposed to be Jesus. Israel's king was supposed to be Yahweh. 
Israel was not supposed to have a king, but Israel wanted a king like everybody else. Israel wanted a man like everybody else. And God said, you don't want that. You don't want that. And the reason David is anointed is because David is supposed to be the person who becomes the foreshadowing of the eternal true King, Jesus Christ. The prophet, priestly king who comes for the salvation of the world. The only king who gets it right. We are not supposed to have earthen kings. We're supposed to have a heavenly king. That's the one we bow our knee to. That's the one who gives us strength. That's the one who gives us hope. It's before the Lord. That's where David arrived, before the Lord. And Saul is now naked before the Lord, stripped bare of all authority, an authority that was bestowed upon him, but because he dishonoured that, because he put himself above the Lord, it was taken from him. And no more pastors need to walk in that anymore. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. supposed to come before the Lord where there is no boasting, where there is no pride, where there is no arrogance. Just mercy, gratitude and the glory of God. We stay in that place and you'll be dancing before the Lord unashamed. Not seeing anybody else as Michal did seeing Him high and lifted up. It's before the Lord. That's what God's doing in David's life. He's reminding him of His promise that it's sure and it's faithful and you've got to hold on to it. He's reminding him that His power is made perfect in weakness and He's warning him against pride and selfishness and he's warning him do not look to the outward appearance look at the heart I've made you a man after God's own heart be that guy be that guy let's stand to our feet Father, you are so good to us. Lord, we pray for each and every one of us here, Lord, in this moment, that we would humble ourselves before you. I pray for all my brothers and sisters out there, all those who are in leadership, all those who would dare to teach, knowing that they will be judged more harshly. Father, Hold your people. Keep us from stumbling. Keep us from wandering. Keep us in your grace. Keep us hidden. May we not be more concerned about our followers than following. But as Paul reminded us over and over and over again, may we fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. May we keep running the race with perseverance. And may we all have a posture of prayer. May we all pray for those who persecute us, knowing that if our enemy is blessed, 
then the situation is fixed. May we honour you above all things we pray. May we not despise the hidden place, but learn to embrace it as an opportunity to hide ourselves in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.